New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. You probably have a sense that something about you is distinct and separate from the world around you. You may well feel that something permanent and unchanging defines you. You may think that you, in some sense, existed before your conception, and will continue to exist in some form after the death of your body. You probably think of yourself as an agent endowed with free will, and consciously making choices that steer you through life. That's how we like to think of ourselves. These are the words of our guest today and serve as the focus of this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, Bodhipaksa. Bodhipaksa was born Graham Stephen in Scotland and currently lives and teaches in New Hampshire. He is a Buddhist teacher and author who has been practicing within the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order since 1982 and who has been a member of this order since 1993. Bodhipaksa runs the online meditation center, Wild Mind to increase awareness of the positive effects of meditation. His published works include the audios, The Wisdom of the Breath, and the book, Wild Mind. He's the author of Living as a River. Join us for the next hour as we discover who we really are with our guest, Bodhipaksa. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Bodhipaksa, welcome. Hello, Michael. Nice to have you here. So, let's... Tell me about the beginning. How did this all begin for you? Well, it began from a meditation practice that I learned or was taught in uh, 1993 in the context of a very long retreat, 16-week retreat that I was on in the highlands of Spain. And uh, it's a meditation practice, a traditional Buddhist reflection called the Six Element Practice. And I love it. It's a beautiful reflection on uh, impermanence and interconnectedness. And uh, it just so happened that I was over in uh, Colorado doing some recording with Sounds True, and uh, they asked me to speak to the staff uh, there at a staff meeting. And uh, I just introduced myself and led them to a little guided meditation, and I'd happened to mention something about this practice. Someone asked me about it, I gave a very brief description, and people seem entranced. And so... Uh, Tammy Simon and, and I, she's the founder of Sounds True and, and owner, uh, got to talking about the idea of a book, which I'd actually been thinking about. And um, we both had very similar ideas about the kind of book that we could write based around the six elements. I have to say, it's not uh, an instructional manual. It's not uh, a how-to book on, you know, this is the first thing that you do when you sit down and do the six element practice. Uh, the book itself is intended to be a meditation, uh, so that as you engage with uh, 
the outline of the practice uh, and engage with that intellectually and emotionally and imaginatively, uh, you're actually uh, doing the reflection. So the whole book is a reflective practice, or it's meant to be. What does your name mean? My name means Wings of Enlightenment, and it was given to me when I was ordained into the Western Buddhist Order, which is now, by the way, known as the Tri Ratna Buddhist Order, has been just for a few months. And uh, my preceptor, who chose that name for me, um, uh, said he picked it because uh, it conveyed a sense of balance. And I think balance is something I need to keep working for, because my life tends to get out of balance, and my personality can get out of balance sometimes but uh, he said that whenever he thought of one quality that he could use to name me he thought oh, well he's also got the other quality you know so uh, it seemed to him like a very appropriate name to me it's more of a teaching it's more of a reminder uh, that I have to keep bringing my life back into balance again and your preceptor was my preceptor was a man called Suvadra uh, who's a, a Scottish uh, order member he's been a, a Buddhist for many many years well, some other influences that that influenced you? Goodness. Um, well, I began practicing with the Tri Ratna um, Buddhist order uh, when I was quite young. I was only about 20, 21, actually. Um, so that's been my kind of main uh, influence. But I also have developed a strong interest in uh, Vipassana uh, meditation, and I've done some Vipassana practice. Uh, I have an interest in some of the uh, Tibetan meditation approaches, the Dzogchen Mahamudra approaches, which emphasize connecting with the underlying spaciousness of your mind and uh, developing more of an identification with that rather than with the more ephemeral contents of your mind because we tend to define ourselves in terms of the kind of thoughts that we have and the ideas that we have and the kind of emotions that we have, etc., so those have been influences as well. And science has been a huge influence on me. Um, I originally trained as a, a veterinarian, which doesn't really make me a scientist, but I guess I was interested in that partly because I was interested in, in the natural world, I was interested in animals, I was interested in, in science and how things work. And I, I wanted to do something that would be helpful. Um, so I, I brought a kind of scientific, uh, well, or, or rather I valued a scientific uh, uh, perspective, and uh, I feel that science has a lot to teach us, uh, and that we we can't really ignore it. And so, there's a lot of science in my book. You were raised in Scotland. I was raised in Scotland. Yeah, I was born in a town called Dundee, uh, brought up just a few miles from there, and uh, uh, lived most of my adult life in Glasgow and in a retreat centre in the Highlands of Scotland. I ran a retreat centre for for about three years. Talk about your when you when you were growing up. What was that like? Or you did you live on a? Did you have animals? Did you? No, I lived um, on the edge of a small town, and uh, for some some of my life, we did have a lot of small animals. You know, we had uh, guinea pigs and uh, you know rabbits and, uh, and and things like that. But my uh, my grandfather was uh, a really keen uh, bird watcher, and I used to go out to the country uh, with him, and. Uh, also living on the edge of a town, and at that time in the 60s, uh, children were just allowed to run free. Uh, we just spent a lot of time just you know, going off into the countryside and uh, playing in fields and making ourselves little you know, gang huts and uh, you know, playing with uh, rivers, I remember that a lot, playing with little streams and building dams and things like that. So 
I, I grew up with a, a great love of uh, the natural world. I was certainly not a city boy, although when I did move to a city, I loved that as well. Uh-huh. And you ran a center in Glasgow for a while. Uh, I never ran the center in Glasgow. I, I attended the center in Glasgow, uh-huh. and I was part of the board of directors there. Um, but I did run uh, the meditation center, the retreat center in uh, Balhwyder in the, the highlands of Scotland for about three years. And then I was uh, director of the Edinburgh Buddhist Center for uh, a little under a year and a half before I moved to the U.S. And so what was the bridge from there to the U.S.? Well, even when I was at the retreat center, I'd been um, very interested in studying Buddhism academically. Um, One thing that's very important to me is uh, intellectual integrity. And I'd noticed that there was a tendency just to assent to Buddhist teachings. Uh, I would read or hear something and it would be like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But I would sometimes discover that I would have, uh, there would be contradictions in my mind. I would believe one thing one minute and then in a different context, I would believe something quite different. And uh, I became a bit troubled by the fact that I sometimes took on board ideas a bit too easily. Uh, And I see that that as a a spiritual problem Uh, because if we're, really seeking to transform ourselves, I think we need to be looking at our contradictions. So I investigated the possibility of doing a a master's degree in uh, Buddhism and eventually ended up going to the University of Montana and doing an interdisciplinary master's in Buddhism and business, which strikes many people as a very odd combination. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's quite a jump from Edinburgh to uh, Montana. In some ways, yes, it probably is. <laughs> yes, it's quite a different place. So what was that like for you? Well, I love Montana. I'd been to the Rockies uh, a few times. I had a, a very good friend who lived in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and I'd been over to visit him. And uh, if I'd had an opportunity to go to Boulder, I think I, I would have gone there. But it just so happened that the first opportunity that came up was to go to Missoula, which in a way is like a very small boulder. Uh, it's yeah. in a valley surrounded by mountains. It's a little bastion of uh, liberalism and liberal arts in the middle of a, a sea of you know, conservatism. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just a lovely little intimate place. I, I, when I was there, uh, because I was, te- I was doing some teaching at the university while I was doing my master's degree, and I was also teaching at the Buddhist center there, uh, I just met so many people and knew so many people through those avenues that I couldn't walk two minutes down the street without bumping into somebody that I knew. And it was just like uh, swimming through a sea of love in a way. Yeah. That sounds uh, maybe a little kind of, uh, you know, over the top, but it was like that. It was just, you know, everywhere I go, there was just, you know, friendly contact with people. Yes, you mentioned Zairs and Missoula. It's a wonderful place. Um, so the six element practice, can we talk a little bit about that, what that is actually? Yeah, sure. Um, It's a practice of reflecting on impermanence and uh, interconnectedness or insubstantiality. And the six elements are the four classical elements of earth and water and fire and air, uh, which in this particular context are are really just uh, solid matter. Earth is solid matter. Um, uh, Water is the the liquid that makes up us and the world. Uh, Fire is the metabolic energy in our body plus energy in the outside world. Um, the energy that exists particularly in uh, the biosphere, in the, in the ecosystem. Um, and there's air, which is you know, air, the gases uh, that surround us and uh, permeate us. And then we have the element of uh, space, which 
in the context of this practice I take to be our, our physical form or our sense of separateness from the outside world. And there's consciousness, which is everything that's going on within... Well, it's basically indefinable, isn't it? We, uh, science doesn't have any sense, really, of what consciousness is. We can't define it. Um, it's just, it's, it's in some way, uh, we've come to the point where we, are, we know, we have experience. Um, and within that experience, there's a flow of uh, perceptions and a flow of feelings and, and a flow of thoughts. So what we do in the course of the practice is we take each element in turn and see how what constitutes us is not separate and is not static, but is part of a flow. So take the earth element, for example. Everything, we start by reflecting on everything within the body that is solid and substantial. And so you experience that as best as you can. Uh, you can feel the solidity of your body. You can feel your teeth against each other, the weight of your body. You can also just visualize the uh, parts of yourself that you can't directly experience, so all of your internal organs, uh, etc. You visualize uh, and, and recall the earth element outside of you. So all of the uh, soil and the rocks and the dirt and the trees and the buildings and the crops and fields and the food that's sitting in your refrigerator. And you reflect on how this body, this the earth element inside of you, is not separate. Where did it all come from? You know, you visualize that. You visualize yourself. You recall uh, the process of, of how your body came to be. And so you start to see the earth element flowing into you you also become aware of the earth element flowing out of you as well. We're going to continue our exploration of consciousness with our guest, Rudy Paxa, author of Living as a River, Finding Fearlessness in the Face of Change. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. guest is Bodhipaksa. He's the author of Living as a River, Finding Fearlessness in the Face of Change. Bodhipaksa, we were talking, you were talking about the earth, and we want to come back to that. So, Yeah, sure. So we reflect on the whole process of how uh, the external world becomes our body. We incorporate um, solid matter from the food that we eat, uh, even from our parents' bodies, into our own body. And uh, that process goes on throughout life because uh, our body is continually breaking down. So we visualize that as well. We uh, can recall how, uh, for example, right now I'm breathing, I'm exhaling carbon dioxide. Just a few seconds ago, that was part of the solid matter of my body. Uh, I'm aware of how skin cells are continually being shed and hairs are, are always falling out, etc. 
And so we come to see the solid matter in our body not as a thing, not as something static and separate, but as actually part of, as it were, a river. That's a kind of river, uh, a current of uh, earth which is flowing through this human form. And of course, that is me. Except that in the, in the course of the practice, there's a kind of mantra that we repeat, which is, this is not me, this is not mine, I am not this. Because it's not, you know, <laughs> this body sitting here right now is made up of, uh, you know, probably the flesh of animals I ate back in the days when I ate animals and uh, plant matter from, you know, all over the world. Um, it's continually returning to the, the outside world, uh, the breath that, that I exhaled just a few seconds ago is drifting away. It's going to become trees. It's going to be, you know, uh, part of uh, grapes probably in in this area. And someone soon will be, you know, drinking that as a, a glass of wine. And that's kind of me as well. Except it's not really me anymore. So um, there's this kind of interesting process that goes on where we're observing this river, and it's kind of us, but it's also kind of not us at the same time. And we do this with uh, all of the elements. The space element and consciousness element are a, a little bit different, but uh, it's the same basic principle, just observing a flow, observing a river, and realizing that there is nothing separate or static uh, about us at all. So does one do this in a sitting meditation? Bathroom? Yes, yes, it's done uh, usually as in a sitting practice. I mean, I guess you, you could take it into the outside world, and I, and I sometimes do. Sometimes when I'm driving along the road, I'm very aware of the, the exhalations, which are no doubt finding their way out of the car, and uh, I'm aware of the trees around about me, and aware of the fact that those trees are kind of me, and the fact that I'm breathing in oxygen, which is probably being in part produced by those trees, and so that uh, I'm saturated with the trees. The trees are saturated with me, I'm saturated with them, and uh, so we're we're not separate things at all. Mm-hmm. You talk about uh, going through a systematic and poetic analysis of the self that supports the realization of several things: the sense of spaciousness, profound gratitude, freedom, the relaxed experience. Can we talk about those? Yeah, sure. Um, well, let's take gratitude for example. Yes. I mean. We're both breathing right now. We're you know, breathing in, we're breathing out. I mean, what happens when you pay attention to your breath and you say to yourself, as you're aware of the breath flowing in, this is not me, this is not mine, I'm not this. And I'm completely dependent upon the outside world for my continued existence. I mean, we like to think we're so special <laughs> and so separate, but actually we're just totally dependent uh, upon the outside world. Uh, all the time upon uh, we're totally dependent upon things that are not me in order to be me in order to have this sense of of self and so I just experience this sense of gratitude when I bring that reflection uh, into my practice also my sense of where where I am begins to break down and and maybe this gives me an opportunity to talk about the uh, space element yes Um, because um Einstein talked about this sense of separation that we have, and he talked about it as being a, an optical delusion of consciousness. And I think he meant optical delusion in a very uh, metaphorical sense, but it's almost literally true. You know, I look at my body and I see this skin, which I see as being the boundary between uh, the outside and the, the inside, and whatever is inside is me, and whatever is outside is is not me. But things are way more complicated than that. I mean, I'm sitting here perceiving, we're sitting across the table and I'm seeing you. So where am I seeing you? I mean, that's all kind of happening in the brain, but I see it outside of myself. 
So where are you? Are you outside? Are you inside? It's, in a way, it's it's both and and neither. Um, when we're meditating as well, sometimes that sense of there being a boundary between the inside and the outside completely disappears, and there is simply sensing, and the brain ceases to assign either exteriority or interiority uh, to particular um, uh, sensory sensations that, that are coming in. And so, you know, in one part of your experience there's a bird singing, but you're not saying, well, that's not me. You're not even thinking that's not me. There's no habitual assumption that that's not me. It's just part of experience. It's just this field of experience. And there's a sense of uh, oneness and uh, stillness and uh, perfectness that comes from that. Yeah. As you're speaking, I'm thinking that uh, it's... Um when we're in it, when we're actually experiencing something, we're not really thinking about it. We're just in it. Yeah, a lot of the time we are just experiencing, except that we don't notice that. We kind of take it for granted. And on top of our raw experience, we have we built this that we build this entire superstructure of interpretation. We assign uh, value to the things that we're perceiving uh, in terms of basic feelings. You know, you see somebody, and sometimes you just have a kind of gut dislike of them and you don't really know why it's maybe something about their facial expressions or that they remind you of of somebody or or whatever but uh you know we start off with just that simple feeling and then we start finding reasons to dislike them and uh, we start making up stories about the kind of person that they are and why we should dislike them and so we build up this entire superstructure of interpretation and stories um when there's just this you know, in a way, just a, 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 to start off with, just a basic uh, sensory input. I can give you give you an example of yes. how I've noticed this in my life. I, I remember at one point, uh, I became aware of this when I was in Edinburgh. Uh, I became aware that I had this habit that when I, I walked into a room or came across somebody and they had a pained expression or an unhappy expression on their face, uh, probably because of my childhood conditioning, I would immediately assume that I had done something wrong and that they were going to tell me what they'd done wrong. And that there would be this, uh, first of all, there's just the basic sensory perception, you know, a person sitting there uh, with a particular facial expression. And then there's this tightening, this twisting in the gut. It's like, you know, accompanied by this sense of, oh no, I'm, I'm going to get it now. And then a whole kind of play of habits that would come out of that uh, in reaction to that, that painful feeling because I didn't like that painful feeling and so I would maybe try to get out of there as quickly as possible or I would try to placate the person or uh, cheer them up or something like that but if I, I found that if I just stayed with the perception there's a person who's not looking happy and allowed that unpleasant feeling to be there that sense of twisting in the gut just to allow it to be there but not go into the reactivity and just create a sense of space around about the pain that I was feeling, I'd find that what would happen is a connection with the other person would develop out of that sense of spaciousness. I would find myself concerned about the other person. And instead of um, trying to cheer them up, and because you know, I assumed that that would stop them from attacking me, I would just say, you don't look very happy. What's, what's up? And I'd find out, the vast majority of the time that 
it was nothing to do with me whatsoever. You know, they were having troubles with their girlfriend, or they'd planned a class and only two people had booked, or uh, something like that. So, uh, aren't we when we create these things out of our imagination? I mean, it's like we we make them up. Mm. We just create them out of nothing. Is that the way it goes? Um, well, we create them based on past experiences. Um, I mean, this is where the Buddhist teaching of karma comes in. Um, we tend to have uh, habitual reactions to the world around about us, and in particular to the, to those uh, feelings of things, certain things being pleasant and certain things being unpleasant. Um, and what we often don't have is any kind of sense of choice because we don't have enough mindfulness to observe what's happening and to realize that we can uh, be any different from how we normally are in a, in a habitual way. So perhaps in certain cir circumstances we habitually get angry or we habitually get anxious or we habitually uh, look for, for some source of sensory pleasure. And these things are like automated uh, programs within us, they're like scripts that we run. But with Mindfulness, with the quality of mindfulness, where we're observing our experience and standing back from our experience, we begin to uh, get a sense of, well, is this habit taking me where I want to go? You know, so right now I'm beginning to sense aggression developing. Well, do I really want to go to the place that aggression is going to take me? Or do I'm kind of talking about observer mind, some mind outside of our yeah, looking yeah. back at. Yeah, the mind observing the mind. Yes. And getting a sense of where our habits are taking us and realizing that you've got a choice. You can respond aggressively or you can respond with kindness or you can respond impatiently or you can be more uh, patient and equanimous. Get so caught up in this society because it is a fast-paced society that um, we get lo we're doing something we get, and we, we don't have the space, we don't have the the time to step back and say, oh, well, my observer, it's like, doesn't happen. What about that? Yeah, I think we need to take time out. Uh, I don't think we do that enough these days. Uh, people are constantly switched on and uh, at the mercy of their electronic devices very often. I was sitting at a cafe the other day and I was watching this woman who uh, would just jump every time her cell phone gave a little kind of bing, bing to let her know that a text message had come in and she would just interrupt whatever she was doing right at that moment. Uh, and just jump. It was like she was a slave of her electronic devices. And uh, I think that's what's happening at the moment. I think that will change because it's kind of got to change. Uh, it's just too painful a state to be in and we end up too, too fragmented. But we need to take time out. I think that's one reason why meditation is important. Um, even just laying everything down and getting out for the day, um, you know, switching off your cell phone. Uh, you know, while you're at the cinema or something like that, just so you can just pay attention to one thing for a while. Of course, retreats are fantastic as well. Retreats not don't just take you away from uh, your cell phones, but they take you away from all of the habits that you're involved in uh, in your life, all of the habitual ways of, of being uh, that are to do with television and news and the other people and, and work, etc. in your life. And uh, when you go on a, a retreat and you leave all of that behind... Uh, you start to experience yourself as a as a different person. Usually, well, sometimes it can be kind of painful for people because leaving behind who we have been can sometimes be painful, but very often it's actually quite delightful because we realize that um, we're repressing happiness a lot of the time. Um, 
someone once said to me that um, happiness is the most repressed emotion, and I actually believe that's true. We do things all the time which make us unhappy, and if we just stopped doing them, we'd be so much happier. I'm speaking with Bodhi Paksa. He's the author of Living as a River, Finding Fearlessness in the Face of Change, published by Sounds True Books. And if you'd like more information about the work of Bodhi Paksa, and you spell that B-O-D-H-I-P-A-K-S-A, go to the website wildmind.org. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. Speaking with Bodhi Paksa, he's the author of Living as a River, Finding Fearlessness in the Face of Change. One of the things that you you wrote about, this was the when we were talking about the realization that freedom from the psychological burden caused by clinging to a false identity. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, we all construct these identities for ourselves that we define ourselves in, in various ways. And... Uh, it's traditionally said that this is to do with fear, and I, I became interested in that assertion and uh, poked around in the scientific literature to see what I could find out about it and discovered there is there are some studies done which show that fear results in clinging. There's, there's a whole uh, subsection of modern psychology called terror management theory, which is yes. a great term. And terror management th- uh, theorists have the basic understanding that what we do is to uh, cling or identify with uh, various things in order to protect ourselves against the fear of death. And so there's two studies I talk about in the book which are uh, I find fascinating. One was a study done in uh, Magdeburg, uh, Germany, where terror management theorists went out on the streets and asked people questions in a couple of different locations. And the questions were fairly innocuous and they pitched it as just being a you know, a survey about consumer attitudes. And uh, they asked some people the questions uh, just on a, a normal shopping street, and they asked some other people uh, the questions in a place where they were within sight of the gates of a cemetery. And they found out uh, that the people who could see the cemetery when they were being questioned were much more nationalistic. They were clinging to German things, so... If they were going out for a meal in the next week, it was more likely to be a German meal. If they won the lottery, uh, they would buy a German car. They thought that Germany was far more likely to to win the World Cup, etc., etc. So it seemed that um, even though we don't experience generally a frisson of fear walking past a cemetery or when we're being asked questions uh, and we can see a cemetery in the distance, there's something goes on on a, a, a deep level that we're not conscious of at all that leads us to identify with something that is uh, bigger than, than ourselves. We, we identify with our nationality or it's part of ourselves. And uh, the thing about nations and religions, etc., is that they all give us a sense of belonging to something that will endure uh, beyond the end of our lives and that give us perhaps more, more of a sense of meaning. The other one, which I found even more dramatic, 
was a study of uh, judges in the US and they were given um, fake but realistic cases of uh, prostitution and asked what bail uh, terms that they would set. Uh, but before they were asked to look at the, these cases, they were given a questionnaire to complete and half of the judges had just one question which prompted them to think about death. And it, it wasn't like, you're going to die and rot, you know, <laughs> and the worms are going to eat you. It was just, What's, what do you think is going to happen in the afterlife? Very innocuous question. Again, not the kind of thing that strikes fear into your heart yes. at all. But the judges who were given that question set bail on average eight times higher than the other judges. And I guess that makes me wow. wish that, if, you know, if I'm ever... In court, I hope that the judge hasn't been reading the obituaries that morning. <laughs> Again, there's this sense of you know tightening up to. They didn't look into exactly what it was. I don't think that the the judges were clinging to there, but they were clinging to a sense of morality, or possibly a sense of uh, uh, religion, or to the idea of a, a stable society, or of uh, that wrongdoing had to be punished, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I, I, I see all of I see those examples as being. Um, uh, emblematic of the fact that just basically we cling uh, when there's when there's fear, and we live in a world where everything is changing all the time. Life is a mortality salience condition. That's what uh, the uh, scientists uh, talk about. Reminders of death. They call it a mortality salience condition. Something that reminds us of death, but actually life reminds us of death. We keep looking into the mirror and seeing you know grey hairs and wrinkles that weren't there before, and we see uh, children. Uh, growing up and the policeman looking younger every year, etc. We hear about people dying in accidents and uh, I, I think this causes on, uh, again, quite a deep level that we don't really even notice, a sense of fear. And we think that the way to beat the fear of impermanence is to construct an idea of ourselves as in some way having a kind of permanence that we don't in reality have. The relaxed experience of consciousness, pure and bright, what is that one? That's a good one. Mm. Well, it's it's very interesting when we do the practice, when we do the six element practice, and we've been through the process of observing all of the solid matter flowing through the body, uh, the water, energy, gases, etc., flowing through the body. When we've uh, become aware of our form and our sense of separateness and realized that our very form is changing all the time. Our very form is a, a kind of a river, you know, flowing from the embryonic to the cadaverous with, you know, ourselves somewhere uh, along that line. Um, and we're repeating to ourselves this little mantra, this is not me, this is not mine, I am not this. There can be a sense of uh, liberation and equanimity, a sense of uh, spaciousness uh, that arises and it's very hard to describe what that experience is like, but it's, it's just a sense of expansiveness and a sense of uh, calm. And it's a very appreciative state because you're aware of the extent to which you are dependent upon others and the other uh, in order to have your current existence. And... Um, yeah, I guess it, it's the beginning of, uh, of a whole series of uh, meditative experiences in which our sense of self begins to kind of radically dissolve away, uh, at least temporarily. 
and we no longer have a sense or such a strong sense of being separate. In fact, we can lose the sense altogether of uh, being separate from, from the world round about us and have a sense of uh, unity, um, a sense of, sense of oneness. And the other, other side of the, you, you talk about there's no such thing as consciousness. There's a little <laughs> paradox here. Well, yeah, consciousness isn't a thing. In fact, it's quite kind of indefinable. Um, and that was one of the things that I became very aware of when I was writing the book is how much, you know, we, we like to pin things down and we like to define things. But even when we get to talking about life, which I talk about in terms of the fire element, because uh, the fire element is the energy that's involved in metabolism and, and, in, and, and in life, uh, we can't define life. There's no one been able to come up with a concrete definition of what it means to be, to be living. And then on top of that, we've got the fact that life can be conscious. And we don't know what consciousness is. There's this uh, disconnect, what they call in um, philosophy the hard problem of explaining consciousness. Because on the one hand, you know, we were beginning to understand more and more how information flows along uh, uh, sensory pathways, uh, along nerves from uh, sensory organs into the brain and how it's handled in the brain. But that's the processing of raw sensory data, you know, wavelengths of light and wavelengths of sound. And we experience that not as wavelengths of light and wavelengths of sound, but we experience that as color and texture and and sound. And there's this, there's this disconnect between the physical and the mental, which so far science hasn't been able to explain at all uh, well, not at all well. And uh, so consciousness is kind of a mystery. In fact, just even not being a scientist, it's quite a mystery. I mean, I'm sitting here and I'm feeling an emotion right now. I'm actually feeling pretty happy because I'm enjoying talking with you and it's a, it's a really enjoyable conversation. What's an emotion made of? You know, I, I kind of have a sense of it occupying a space within, within my body. Um, in fact, it doesn't even seem to be entirely confined to my body. It almost seems to be a kind of radiant field, you know, extending outside of me. But I don't really know what it is. It's uh, it's quite a strange thing. Also, consciousness is not it's not a thing in the sense of being something static. It's a, an ever changing flow of events of some one kind or another of sensory impressions of thoughts of uh, feelings and, and emotions. Uh, so it's it's in no way a thing. It's interesting that because those feelings you say it's going outside, it's also affecting others around you. It does, yeah. You know, it has an effect on the on the outside. Yeah, I, I write about this in the in, in the book as well because we tend to have the idea that our consciousness is inside of us, but our consciousness is very very dependent upon other people. We have these cells called mirror neurons that allow us to pick up on what the emotions are in other people. I mean, it's not like some kind of radio where we're sending out uh, emotion waves, uh, but we're picking up on the, you know, the actions and the facial expressions, etc., etc., the, you know, the verbal intonation, and we're reconstructing people's uh, emotional experience from that so we can understand what they're thinking, what they're feeling. And so uh, it is almost like a kind of... Uh, telepathy uh, within us. It's interesting. Uh, is it uh, Apple is now 
basically they have a system whereby they can recognize your facial movements. And so when you open your Apple or open your computer, it's like, uh, oh, hello, how are you today? How, it does look like you're feeling a little badly. What, what's, what, what can I do? <laughs> I mean, it's a little scary, that's you know? A, that's a little spooky when that kind of thing starts to, starts yeah, to happen. It's a technology. Yeah. But our uh, sense of, again, that we have the sense of, you know, here I am and I'm separate from other people, but our sense of who we are is so dependent upon other people. Just think of a time, any time, like, well, being a teenager, for example, a very common experience is you might find yourself surrounded by people who are hostile to you and who don't accept you. It really messes up your sense of who you are. Um, to the point where, I mean, we think of all these uh, recent suicides of uh, you know gay and, and lesbian teens. You know, they've got to the point where it's actually inconceivable for them to continue with their current sense of self, uh, it seems better to destroy the self by, by committing suicide than, than to go on. And yet, you know, well, there's all the videos coming out saying it gets better. And, you know, once you can get out of that and, uh, you know, connect with people who are more positive, that just allows us to flourish. Uh, it allows us to, uh, to grow and to develop and to kind of feel nourished. So our sense of self is so deeply connected with... Uh, other people and many other things as well—the natural world, the colours that are around us, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, your book, in some sense, it's not a Buddhist book, but it, it uses Buddhism a yeah. great deal. Um, you call yourself a skeptical Buddhist, even an agnostic one. Can you explain that? I do. Well, I. Uh, I'm aware of the fact that Buddhist texts were passed on orally for hundreds of years. I'm aware of the fact that there were political disputes within the, the Buddhist community um, that uh, introduced uh, polemic uh, into uh, the Buddhist scriptures. And in fact, uh, I'm aware of the fact that some of the Buddhist scriptures were to do with arguments against other traditions, and that tends to be kind of polemical as well. So there can be all these kind of distortions in there. I'm aware of the fact that Buddhist scriptures were often uh, passed on by people who didn't do any meditation, and uh, that also there may be elements of uh, mythology and um, even the supernatural in there, which may not be at all scientifically valid. We're going to continue our conversation with Bodhi Paksa in just a moment. He's the author of Living as a River, Finding Fearlessness in the Face of Change. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Bodhi Paksa. He's the author of Living as a River, Finding Fearlessness in the Face of Change, published by Sounds True. 
Bernie Poxa, we were talking about skepticism. Let's go back to that. Sure. Well, I guess the uh, the big one is uh, reincarnation. I mean, I have no problem with the Buddhist teaching of karma uh, at all, which is basically the teaching that uh, you shape your own mind and you give rise to your own experiences. I think that teaching is very commonly misunderstood and it's important to go back and look very closely at what the Buddha actually said uh, about that. But I think the basic principle of it is absolutely sound. On the other hand, I find it very, very difficult to imagine how at death uh, consciousness could exist without a physical substrate. Because it's so obvious that our brains and our consciousness are uh, connected and dependent upon each other. I mean, our consciousness affects our brain. If you decide to develop a particular skill like you know, music or mathematics or uh, understanding the geography of uh, New York City, you know, the corresponding parts of your brain connected with that will, will change, and that's you know, your consciousness having an effect on the brain. But your brain also has an effect on your consciousness. I mean, what happens when we have a, a stroke in the brain and part of the, the brain just you know, dies? I mean, we lose a faculty. You know, if our consciousness can exist without a mental substrate, why does brain damage uh, affect us? It seems rather strange. So I don't rule it out. It just seems uh, very far-fetched. Um, reincarnation seems far-fetched? Reincarnation seems far-fetched to me. I, I mean, I know there's some... Uh, there's some studies been been done which uh, purport to show that uh, people bring over you know memories from uh, from previous lives, but you know, without having you know personally gone to to look at those uh, cases, uh, it's difficult for me to believe them wholeheartedly. I suppose what it comes down to basically is I'm agnostic about that that particular area. It's not something that directly influences my life, and I'm quite happy to say, well, Buddhism teaches this. Uh, but I'm not going to say, yes, reincarnation is true. I'm not going to say that just because I'm a Buddhist and because that happens to be a, a Buddhist teaching, I'm not going to uh, do that. It's quite important for me to, just from an ethical point of view, not to state something as being true when I don't know from personal experience that, that it's true. And I don't have any personal experience of uh, past lives, at least not that I've been able to remember. There are, I mean, legitimate scientific studies of people that have died and have come back and have talked about the experience of what happened to them. Um, yeah, I, I guess there there are. I mean, that seems a bit different, though. Um, <clears throat> I mean, people may have clinically died, but it seems that activity can go on in the brain for quite a long time afterwards, even when uh, blood flow has stopped. I saw a presentation uh, last night by uh, a neuroscientist at the uh, Science and Non-Duality Conference, and he was talking about... Uh, measurements of uh, electrical activity going on in, in the brain for up to 20 minutes after somebody's uh, clinically dead. So uh, it seems quite possible to me that somebody could be clinically dead and be continue and continue to be experiencing and uh, you know be brought back, be be revived, and uh, uh, be able to describe those experiences. But we, you know, our experiences and. What is experience like? You know, when the blood shuts off to your brain. I mean, I can imagine it might well be quite dreamlike, and that you might well be interpreting uh, physiological events that are taking place in, in the brain in uh, terms of uh, you know tunnels of light and hosts of angelic beings, etc. I just I just don't know about this kind of thing. I I, I try to keep an open mind about it. I'm willing to be uh, 
persuaded by sufficiently strong evidence. But it's not something that I'm going to go out and try to prove. It's not something that I even these days go out and seek much evidence about. I'm, I'm really interested in my moment-by-moment moment life. I mean, I know I'm going to die at some point, and an awareness of that, uh, I find it's helpful in my life. It can, When I bear that in mind, it helps me stay focused on things that are more central and more important. It helps keep me in touch with my, my deeper values. As the Tibetans say, death rides on our shoulders, you know? Uh, it's, yeah, it's everywhere. <laughs> You're not going to escape yeah. it. One of the chapters, the chapter three actually, is uh, self as a verb, and it's a wonderful um, quote, and I should say all the chapters here in the book start with these really great quotes. It's from Barbara Shear. We are like violins. We can be used for doorstops, or we can make music. So, you know, what is the self? Who is the self? Who, who I think as soon as you say anything about the self, you're falsifying. Um, it's one of the themes brought up in the book, or one of the many themes brought up in the book, because I I don't seem to be very good at being pithy. <laughs> I go on at length. Um, I talk about how uh, language is uh, inherently falsifying. Uh, as soon as we start to, to use nouns, uh, for example, we start to have an idea of things being more concrete and unchanging uh, than they actually are. Um, in fact, I saw a recent study done which showed that when people name something that they've seen in a photograph, they can remember much less about it than if they've just looked at the photograph. So that's just an example of uh, naming, uh, you know, distorting uh, our experience. I'd, I lost the thread of what you'd asked me there, I confess. What is the self? Yeah. Oh, the self, okay. Self. <clears throat> and I can't remember how I got on to talking about nouns and... Uh, Oh, I think the words, what the words mean, like to be and being. Yeah, I can't remember why I started talking about it, though. <laughs> what was the question you asked me? I asked you, uh, what is the self? Uh, right, okay. So, yes, I remember how I got onto that. So, can we pick up from there? Sure. What yeah. is the self? So, as soon as we start talking about, you know, what we are, um, if we start talking about ourselves in terms of, you know, we're interrelatedness or we're uh, the universe become aware of itself or anything like that. So as long as we have any idea whatsoever of what we are, it tends to, to I think, introduce an element of distortion. And what the, the Buddhist teachings do over and over again is remind us to look at anything that we might identify with as being the self and say, this is not me, this is not mine, uh, I am not this. And where does that leave you? I mean, when you get to the end of the six element practice, you've let go of your body and recognize that that's not you. It's not the basis for, uh, for, for the kind of you which is separate and permanent. Uh, you've let go of the, the mind. You've let go of your consciousness as well. And it's like, well, what, what's left? And it's actually quite mysterious. And I, th I think what the, the best I can say is that the self is indefinable. I mean, from some of the things that we've been said, I think it's fairly clear that ourselves are neither inside us nor outside us, you know, totally. My sense of self is so dependent upon things that are happening in the outside world. The outside world is being created in a kind of virtual simulation inside my, my own mind. Um, the world that I see outside of me it has uh, qualities of uh, color, etc. I mean, I see you know, emotion on, on your face, uh, et cetera. And, and those things are 
taking place uh, you know, inside me, but they're projected onto the outside world, as it were. So you can't really even point to where yourself is. It's not a thing. Uh, it's just continually changing all the time. It's really totally undefinable. You told a story uh, that virtual selves in the book about your friend Clive. Yeah, so yeah. Talk about Clive. It was a friend of mine who lived in uh, in Boulder, Colorado, and he was a. I went over to visit him a few times and fell in love with the area and went climbing with him. And uh, one time, just after it'd been a couple of weeks after I'd come back from visiting him, a policeman came to the door and told me that he'd uh, he'd died. He and his wife had died in a climbing accident. And whew, I mean, God, that really, really hit me, um, you know, very, very strongly. But um, it took a long, long time to remember. I had to keep remembering over and over again that he was dead. Um, what happens when you when you know somebody? is that you build a model of that person in your mind. You can dream about them, you can uh, think about them, you can imagine having a conversation uh, with them. You know what their responses might be to a particular joke or a particular piece of music or or something like that. Um, And when somebody dies, we, we don't delete those programs. Uh, it's not like you know you stop using Microsoft Word and so you just delete it from your uh, your computer. It, we've invested a lot of uh, resources in the brain uh, to simulate that person, and uh, we don't seem to have any mechanism for immediately uh, disposing of that, which I think is a very good thing. And so you keep finding yourself thinking uh, about that about this person who's who's died, and uh, and having to realize over and over again that they've that they've died. And I think we do this with ourselves as well. We build up ideas of what we're like and we forget to update our mental models of ourselves. Sometimes the models that we build up of ourselves are actually highly inaccurate in the first place. I mean, we know people who are perfectly capable but who think that they can't do things. We know people who um, aren't actually very nice to be around, but they think that everybody loves them. You know, our models can, can often be completely out of whack. But we often just forget to update the models in, in terms of the, the evidence that's available to us. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, piece at the end of the book I'd like you to share with our listeners right now, if you would, please. Sure. This is... <clears throat> I'd, like the, I'd like to leave you with an image from the poem. St. Francis and the Sow by Galway Canal, which evokes this sense of calling forth another being's potential by reminding it of its own beauty. The bud stands for all things, even those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. Bodhi Paksa, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Michael. I've been speaking with Bodhi Paksa. He's the author of Living as a River, Finding Fearlessness in the Face of Change, published by Sounds True Books. And if you'd like more information about his work, you can go to the website, wildmind.org. That's wildmind.org. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3387. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973. 
thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.